What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? So a Christian brother is down and out. One of the Christians here, let's say a church, has no clothes, no food, and we know it. And we stay unmoved. We don't give him a thing except we wish him well or we simply pray that may God help you and give you peace, but we don't feed him or clothe him, then what good is it? No, we must clothe him and feed him, and then we'll wish that may God be with you. But a simple wish will not do it. So St. James confirms, in the same way, Faith without works is dead. So the wish without action, the prayer without action is meaningless. Faith without works is inactive or dead. Another important point at the next verse uh, will be brought up by St. James who wants to stress the strong connection between faith and works. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith with works. Again, if we don't have much depth or knowledge of the scriptures, we would conclude that what's important in Christianity is works or good deeds. But this is incorrect. And what makes this verse very significant, outside of the fact that it confuses a great deal of Christians, is the tendency to make faith autonomous or independent or make works autonomous or make works independent. And we will explain. We have different people that separate faith from their lifestyle. And they tell you, I believe, I believe in God. Now how I live and what I do is irrelevant. So they isolate faith. And we also have the other extreme, the other crowd, that makes works the center of their existence. They make works autonomous, or they isolate works. They say, I like to do good deeds, and as long as I keep doing good, then what I believe is irrelevant. We all have the same God, as long as we do good things. I support all kinds of good causes. 
I march for dimes. I do all these nice things, and that makes me feel good inside. It doesn't really matter that I have no idea what my faith is all about and what God wants from me, and it doesn't matter that I do not take the time to study God's law. I simply take care to do many good things. So let's pay attention here. Do you get impressed by the professionalism of the Jehovah Witnesses when they come knocking on your door? Do they show meekness and calmness after you tell, you yell at them and tell them off and tell them to hit the road? And after you tell them to get lost or call them sons of the devil, they may politely tell you, why are you acting like this? Christians shouldn't get upset, and so on. So the Jehovah Witnesses possess plenty of good works, an ethical lifestyle. But so what? According to St. John the Divine, they are godless. But also, within our congregations, we have the question about the Masons. What are the Masons? And can Orthodox Christians become Masons? We have some priests that may even suggest that Masons are philanthropists, and these good works qualify them as good Christians. Now, if you happen to love the truth, and you search somewhat, and you tell people that Masons are idolaters, they are godless, they are antichrists, then you will be attacked. Many of our Christians will disagree with you, and they'll try to convince you that, no, Masons are good people. They help. They do so much. They help with hospitals. They build all kinds of good things. They love to help the community. It is true that most of the Masons of the lower degrees have been deceived and have no idea what they got themselves into. But one thing is for sure. They may feel that they are good Christians because they perform good deeds. What's also for sure is that these good deeds will not save them because their works are isolated to some form of philanthropy, if you can call it philanthropy because it's more in the line of sales promotion and public relations and advertising and a front to attract more members. So these works are totally useless because they are unrelated to the faith in Jesus Christ. And in the Psalms, these deeds are called a curse. Not a single blessing will result from these deeds but a curse. So our Christians become impressed or fascinated and run to support some of these organizations within our congregations because they seem to help and give to good causes. St. James wants to tell the Christians of all times to not only look at the works of these people, but also be concerned about their beliefs and their lifestyle and their personal virtues. 
but they have works and they believe in one God. Well, let's listen to St. James. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe and they tremble. So you believe that there's only one God. That's nice. But as we discussed earlier, works without faith cannot save you. In the same way, faith alone without works will not save you. And a faith like this is similar to the faith of the demons who also believe but do not have works. Let's see. Do the demons believe? Yes, they do. They were constantly telling Jesus, we know who you are. You are the Son of God. So the demons believe in God. Even the angels believe in God. We may think that the angels are around the throne of God. They see him face to face. So there's no need for them to believe because they see God. Not so. The angels believe in God. No one has seen God. Nothing created can see God. God is invisible to all creation. What do we see? are the uncreated energies of God. We see God's glory. Just like at twilight, we see some light, even though the sun itself is not visible. So the angels see the glory of God and not the nature of God. God is indescribable, untouchable, inconceivable, indefinable, and so on. So the demons believe in God being ex-angels. Beyond the faith in one God is the faith in the incarnation of Christ. The angels also had their faith tested. We don't know exactly how. The demons fell because they abused this test of faith. Just like Adam and Eve had their test with the forbidden fruit. The angel's faith was also tested, but the final test which solidified and cemented the faith of the angels was the incarnation of God. So based on the faith on the incarnation, the angels can no longer fall. Their faith is now complete, so they choose not to fall. Their test is completed. The demons confessed Christ was the Son of God. Now, how do they understand this? We cannot say for sure. But not only they believe, but they tremble. They believe in the reality of hell. The demons are not in hell yet. They will go there. And when they think about it, they shake and they tremble. They beg Christ, do not send us to hell, but allow us to enter into these pigs that the Gerasenes are growing illegally. According to the law of the Old Testament, it was illegal to grow pigs. And now we can understand why Jesus allowed them to kill the pigs. So faith in the mere existence of God is weaker than the faith of demons who not only believe, but they tremble. Some people laugh and make 
hell a joking matter, while the demons who teach people that there is no hell, they themselves believe and tremble. So the demons are higher spiritually than a lot of our Christians who have many jokes of, or funnies about hell, and one of the milder ones being, I don't mind going to hell because a lot of my friends will be there. This is foolish. Needless to say, there are also very bad and distasteful jokes about hell and paradise in our terrible times. Again, the demons are not godless. They are not atheists, but they suggest and inspire people that there is no God. Atheism is much worse than having a false faith. We must mention that the ancient peoples had one form of a god or another. They were idolaters, but those people believed. They believed in many false gods, but they believed. Atheism was inexistent. There were no atheists, simply idolaters. The atheist only believes in himself, and atheism is sheer craziness. Atheism is a phenomenon of recent times, especially in our days, and such people ought to have their heads examined. Even secular psychology finds these people peculiar and unbalanced. Unfortunately, the demons are not atheists, but people are. What St. James wants to point out here is that the demons believe in God and they tremble. Now you may ask, are the demons going to be saved? No, because their faith is only of the intellect. They believe, but they don't love. They have no love. They have no virtues. They have no works. So their faith is dead, and it is impossible for them to be saved. Now, why do we, do we expend on this so much? Because it is a matter of salvation. The relationship of faith and works has to do greatly with our salvation, our own salvation, and this should concern us greatly. If I am going to be saved or not, what can I do to be saved? Because this is the overall purpose of our existence. Again, we don't practice all of the above because we feel some satisfaction or because we want to ease our conscience, but the only purpose of faith and works is our personal salvation. Question, do the ladies of our philanthropic societies realize this? The ladies who work and run and struggle to collect money sponsoring bingo games or bridge games or pinnacle or raffle tickets to help the homeless or the hungry. They use every possible method. Now, if you ask these ladies, these things that you are doing, would they help your salvation? Are you working for your salvation? The response will usually be that these things are nice. We do these things because we love our fellow man and we want to avoid boredom. We want we want to have something to do, have been the company of friends. In other words, these works are isolated, detached, and serve a purpose in themselves.
to pass the time or to show off. And all these activities do not reflect their quest for salvation. But according to St. James, can faith without works save you? No, just like works without faith cannot save you. So the relationship of faith and works is such that can lead to salvation. And St. Cyril of Jerusalem says that the root of every good work is the resurrection of the dead. And what do we mean by this? The resurrection of the dead is a matter of faith. Good deeds is a matter of works. So here is the relationship between faith and works. So the root of works is faith, the root of all good deeds. So if you do something good, its root is in the resurrection of the dead. So we see in this case that faith comes first and works follow. St. Paul in his epistles usually calls good works love, which fulfills all the works. If I love, I will keep all the commandments. If I love, I will never steal or hurt or abuse another human being. I will keep all the commandments because of my love towards God. So love is the cross-section of all the virtues and all the good works. So St. John the Chrysostom says, What comes first, faith or love? Neither one. But at some time, at some instant, one of these will come first, and the other one will follow. Then the first one will lead to have the second one follow, much like the two feet of a child ready to walk. It is not significant whether the child starts its first step by the right foot or the left foot, but for walking to take place, the one foot must follow the other and so on, meaning one time the left foot in front and the other time the right foot leads. So with faith and love we have the same action. Love strengthens and feeds faith and faith increases and strengthens love so we can say that the two cooperate and co-develop. But you may say that one of these had to be first at some point. Well, God will find us at some point. Some people he finds at the point of love or works, and other people he finds at the point of faith. For example, some people had no faith, but they were people of good disposition, good-hearted people, and they loved to do good. So for those people, the seed of faith came and it took root because they provided fertile ground, and faith now came to give meaning to their good works. On the contrary, someone may have been a troublemaker or a criminal and even immoral, and at some point faith comes and it changes his life to a life of good, a life of good works. So in this case, faith came first. So we cannot define what comes first. This depends on God and on the person. Just like at one of the great sermons of St. Cosmas Dolos, 
two thieves were hiding in the nearby bushes waiting to rob the village. They heard his great sermon and they put an end to their evil deeds and became good Christians. So what came first? Certainly not their works because they were all evil, but their faith. They probably heard about God's judgment and God's love, God's love for the sinner, about repentance, and they were shaken up. The Holy Spirit of God touched their heart and they believed. In the Acts of the Apostles, we read about Cornelius the Centurion, whose prayers, alms, and good works reached the throne of God. He was a good-hearted man, but he had no faith in Jesus Christ. He was a pagan. But after his fasting and prayers and almsgiving, an angel came to instruct him and ask him to invite Peter to bring him into the faith of Jesus Christ. Peter visited Cornelius, who was a Gentile or a pagan, but was talked about by all the Jewish people in the area because of his great works. So Cornelius had good works and love for his fellow men, but he lacked the true faith. And without true faith in Jesus Christ, all of these works would have been meaningless. We cannot emphasize this enough that if we separate any of these virtues from Christ, they are not only meaningless, but they are a curse. Love without Christ is meaningless. Faith without Christ is godlessness, and works without Christ, according to St. Paul, are sinful. Without truth, there is no love, because both truth and love proceed from God. Many people today are searching for love without Christ. For truth without Christ, in other words, they have isolated these two uncreated energies of God from their source. The result is an anthropocentric love, the attempt to promote love among all people regardless of faith, dogma, regardless of religious background. This is a trap. So in our need to avoid conflicts between people of different religions, we begin dialogues of love, patronizing other faiths, faiths compelled to show our respect for other people's faiths, or some of our church leaders want to teach us. So very subtly, we find ourselves in the super heresy of ecumenism, one of the greatest plagues of our church. This ecumenistic and sick love plagued the church in the 60s when a patriarch was romancing a love without bounds, not in the name of truth, casting aside dogmas, canons, and ecumenical synods. This sinister ecumenistic movement, which suggests that not a single one religion has the absolute truth, but all religions have part of the truth, is a brainchild of the branch theory, a very blasphemous theory. Someday we will devote an entire program on this great menace of the Orthodox Church. The bitter truth is that the ecumenists control most of the posts in the Orthodox Church of the West.
My friends, I read a great deal of books of the Orthodox faith in both languages, and the differences are tremendous. The writers and publishers of Orthodox America, most of them Greek Orthodox, are singing a different tune than the contemporary fathers of Eastern Orthodox Church of Romania, Greece, Serbia, and Russia. The other day I was visiting a Sunday school class and I happened to glance at the textbook that the teacher was using. The writer and publisher is a highly revered priest of orthodoxy in America. And what I read on page 75 of this red book made me grieve deeply. So I quote, So we respect the non-Christian religions in essence, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, etc., for the truths we find in them. For whenever there is truth, it has come from God. And the father quotes E. Stanley Jones, I am convinced that while there are truths in all faiths, only Jesus is the truth. My friends, these teachings are treacherous, having been derived by Protestant ecumenistic thought. The publisher makes every effort to include a barrage of examples and role models in his books from the Protestant world, and from time to time he will quote from church fathers and saints. The Jones and Kings and the Dillons and the Dobsons and the Eckerts are probably very nice people, but they are not orthodox and certainly not saints. The traditional orthodox theologians quote from St. John the Chrysostom, St. Basil, St. Gregory Palamas, St. Anthony Arethas, St. Ephraim the Syrian, St. Isaac the Syrian, the apostles and our Lord. So let's see what our contemporary church fathers and our holy apostles say about this type of thing. St. John, in his second epistle, teaches that anyone that goes ahead and does not abide in Christ has no God. St. Paul had to exercise the demonic spirit in the slave girl, in the medium girl of Thessalonica, Acts 16, 16, even though the evil spirit was telling the truth. The evil spirit, through the medium girl, was constantly repeating, these men are servants of the Most High. St. Paul did not respect this true teaching because its source was evil. St. James, in his epistle, reinforced that, and he says that the demons believe in the true God and they tremble, but we certainly do not respect some of the truths that are found in the satanic cults and devil worshippers because their source is not from God. We do not respect any of the other religions because their father is the devil. We simply respect people as creations of God and we love them and we pray for them and we pray that they come to the truth. And before I get many of our listeners upset, 
let me quote our Lord Jesus Christ in the second chapter of the book of the Revelation. I know the slander of those that say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, which would mean that these people did not accept the truth about Christ. See how much respect our Lord shows for them? Christ actually loves the people, but does not respect their religion. And now, I quote one of the contemporary pillars of orthodoxy, a highly revered father in the Orthodox Easter Bloc, who reached great levels of holiness, Father Eustino Popovich. And I translate, Wherever Christ is absent, everything turns into a curse, bitterness and terror. He uses this verse from the Psalms. I only want you, my sweetest Christ. I don't want death without you, and I don't want life without you. The truth, if it is not Christ, it is useless to me. It is only hell. Even God without Christ is hell. I don't want the truth without Christ. I don't want righteousness without Christ, nor love without Christ, nor God without Christ. The Holy Father is simply quoting scriptures. His writings has been, have been condemned as being harsh, but he's simply quoting St. John and St. Paul. My friends, I know that a lot of our listeners may not accept some of these teachings, but this is the gospel truth. The ecumenists will find our message harsh, narrow-minded, and possibly judgmental. Humanistic movement has flourished here in the West in the last 50, 60 years, thanks to certain church leaders. Just a simple observation. Where are the saints of our modern-day ecumenistic Orthodox American church? Where are all the holy ones of America? The holy ones are to be found in the older countries of Orthodoxy, who have fought ecumenism tooth and nail. Holy Fathers such as Justino Popovic of Serbia, St. George the Hodzevite of Romania, with his body intact in Jerusalem, Father Cleopa Elie, Father Dimitri Stalinoe, and Father Chrysostom Apostolaki, Father Paisios Olar of Romania, St. Savas of Kalimnos, St. Arsenios of Farasa, Father Nicholas Planas, Father Gervasios Paraskevopoulos, Father Philotheos Zervakos, Father Joe Yanakopoulos, Father Amphilochios Macris, Father Dimitrios Gagastathis, Father Porfirios of Suroti, and Father Iakovos of Osios David, Father Haralambos Vasilopoulos, Father Paisios of Holy Mountain, and Father Epiphanios Theodoropoulos, and many more that only God knows. I must confess. And I know that I'm speaking like a fool, but having spent quite some time with their writings and life stories, they generally disagreed and 
disagreed sharply and fought heavily against the ecumenical movement, looking at it as the greatest threat of the truth and a forerunner of the Antichrist. And they are known by the truth himself. All of our above saints reached holiness by fearing and loving God at the same time. They also loved the church of God, and they had the wisdom to follow the church and leave its traditions and canons intact, leave them the way they found them. They truly believed that the eternal Orthodox Church had the power to change them into saints, where the modern ecumenists believe that it is up to them to change the church in order to save it and preserve it, making it comparable to the other denominations, a crime that will not go unnoticed on that day. The Holy Orthodox Church is the only true body of Christ, and since there is no truth or love or righteousness outside of Christ, true holiness and true theosis can only be attained by the true believers of the Orthodox Church who hold on to the traditions that were passed down either by scripture or word of mouth. So in our days we have the phenomenon where people want to exercise love regardless of truth or would like to have peace without Christ and would like to do good works without any spiritual convictions in particular. All of these virtues, if they are not linked and are not a result of the faith in Christ, they are meaningless. St. Paul says, any of the above that does not result from faith in God, it is sin. In other words, let's say that we make a large contribution to a good cause because we feel like it, because we want to get attention, or because it will give us something to do, something to break the monotony, and possibly get our name in the newspaper. Well, let's not think that we are doing good works. When we sponsor all kinds of dances, with or without raffle tickets, bingo games, or fashion shows, and when we promote all these things to raise funds, even if these funds are used for the church or for the greatest of causes, no, let's not be deceived. God never accepts or wants these types of contribution. Let's be sure of that. Again, everything that is not connected to the faith in Jesus Christ, it is sin. And now St. James wants to present us with some examples as evidence for the relationship of faith works. You foolish men, do you want evidence that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness 
and he was called God's friend. You see that a man is justified by works and not only faith. St. James is so adamant about this type of thing. He looks at this thing so importantly to the point to call someone foolish. The Lord specifically told us not to call anyone a fool or raka. But why is St. James here using this heavy language towards another human being? St. Paul also used a similar statement while talking to the Galatians. Foolish, O oh foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? So you will not stay in the truth of the gospel. St. James here and St. Paul are not speaking to anyone individual, but they are using this term in general. So in this case, there is no criticism or judgment. But in cases of great importance, such as faith or dogma, someone can use this type of language, but not for mundane matters. It was for the greatest of dogmatic matters that St. Nicholas slapped Arius, an extremely rare event in the life of our church saints. So you foolish men, you are going around believe whatever, whatever you feel like it. Do you want proof that faith without works is dead? Listen to this example. Abraham was moved by faith in God. God told him, leave your relatives, your land, leave it, leave everything behind, and follow me. Go where I tell you. Now Abraham has no children, and God tells him, Abraham, I'm going to give you so many children, your descendants will be innumerable. Now Abraham says, Lord, I have no children with my wife Sarah. I'm ready to die. I'm a hundred years old. My inheritance will go to my stepson, the son of my slave girl. No, Abraham, God says, you will have a true son. Come out of your tent, look up in the sky, and try to measure the stars. Your descendants will be like the stars in the sky, like the sand of the sea. In the meantime, Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90. And what couple? can have a child at that age. Well, Abraham believed. God said it. It was good enough for Abraham. Age had nothing to do with it. So Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Righteousness here means virtue. Abraham was a very virtuous man, a man of works. We said earlier that works means virtues. So Abraham believed God, he moved from his land to where God instructed him, and he worked out his faith by willing to sacrifice his only son, and he was called God's friend. So faith and virtue go hand in hand. So St. James here wants to prove that faith without works does not save. St. Paul uses the same example to show the opposite, that works do not save, but faith does. And St. Paul asks, what kind of deeds did Abraham have, meaning works of the law? 
such as circumcision, sacrifices, keeping the Sabbath, going to the temple. Paul asks, when did Abraham, Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, before or after his circumcision? Wasn't this told to Abraham before his circumcision? So do you see that Abraham was justified by faith and not works, meaning works of the law. St. Paul here uses the opposite example, and a lot of people may find a contradiction here between St. James and St. Paul. Was Martin Luther falsely believed? No, there's no contradiction, and there can be no contradiction in the Holy Scriptures. The contradiction can only be seen by those that read quickly, not a good practice when it comes to the Word of God, and those that do not have the Spirit of God like Luther and his bunch, who did not honor the epistle of St. James because of this. The Protestants believe that I only need faith, I don't need works. So we will side with St. Paul because he seems to be easier than St. James. My friends, for the Orthodox, there is not a single contradiction in the Word of God. And we should glorify the Spirit of God who guided these two holy apostles to use the same example to clearly show that what we have here is the same coin with two sides. When St. Paul says that works do not save you, but faith does, he means works of the law and not works of Christian virtue, not works of Christianity. Do you want proof that St. Paul believes that faith alone does not save? He says in Corinthians, if I have faith to move mountains, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. What is love? We repeat over and over again. Love is works. Love is the cross-section of works. St. Paul is in perfect agreement with St. James. So St. Paul is talking about works of the law. His countrymen back then were putting a lot of emphasis on these works, even after they became Christians, as we read in Galatians. These works do nothing toward salvation, and Abraham was considered righteous before these works of the law were fully established, before circumcision. And St. James wants to say that if you do not connect faith with works, as St. Paul said, if your faith is not backed by works, just like Abraham's, then you have nothing to gain. Both apostles say exactly the same thing. Why did we spend so much time on this? Because there are many misconceptions about faith and works in the minds of our faithful Christians. In the early times, some of these misconceptions enter the church from the synagogue and the Jewish converts. And in our days, there's a great confusion in these matters because we ignore the teachings of the fathers and we often swim in the murky waters of non-Orthodox theology. 
In our own congregations, we have the case of some senior citizens who may have lived a sinful life, gossiping, arguing, lying, playing cards, and now they have their pension, so they have a lot of free time. Once or twice a month, they will fill a bus and go to this monastery or that convent or to an all-night service, and these poor people do not realize that unless they change their life, their evil ways, control their tongue, stop arguing with the in-laws, they will not enter the kingdom of God by running to some convent or to pilgrimages. Sometimes we think that when we do these things, these things will save us. We use these religious activities to ease our conscience, believing that they will be enough to save us. These things are nice, but not enough. Going to the Holy Land as a visitor or pilgrim is wonderful, but will not grant us salvation. As Bishop Agustinos of Florida mentions, go drink the entire Jordan River, drink it dry, and it will not save you if your life does not change. All these things are nice, but do not think for a second that you will be saved unless you change your life, change your ways, begin to develop Christ-like virtues, works of virtue. We are not picking on any certain group here. This is true for all of us. Young and old, we must change our life, change our ways. Let's not think that we will be saved because we help at the church bazaar or at the bake sale or sell tickets for the next dance. No, we need to change our life to become people of the Spirit, to have the mind of Christ, to have faith and works. Works meaning patience, love, perseverance, forgiveness. Just like the thief on the cross, he showed tremendous faith, tremendous faith and here are his works. Number one, his first work is that he believed in the person of Jesus Christ. His second work was repentance. We deserve to suffer. We are criminals, but he is innocent. His third work, confession. When the entire crowd was spitting and crucifying the Lord, Calling him an imposter, the thief confesses him as Lord and God, even on the cross. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. These are his works. Self-knowledge, repentance, and confession. And these are the works that save. And let's pay attention to these and begin to acquire these works because without these we will not be remembered in his kingdom. You see that his faith, meaning Abraham's, you see that his faith collaborated with his works, and by the works, the faith was perfected. Exactly what we discussed earlier. What comes first, faith or works? Remember the steps of the toddler. Right foot, left foot, right, left, Faith works, works, faith, faith works. So Abraham began with faith and was led to works. 
and from works he reinforced his faith, which means the one feeds the other. You see that a man is justified by his works and not by faith only. So St. James used this great example of our patriarch Abraham, the man of the greatest faith in the Old Testament, the man who received so many favors from God, to be called a friend of God. But some of us here may become discouraged and weary thinking, well, that's Abraham. How can we be compared to Abraham? So St. James uses another example to encourage those of us that happen to live in this adulterous and wicked generation. So he takes a person of very low existence. If Abraham was on the top of the world spiritually, this person would be headed in the opposite direction, hitting rock bottom. She was a harlot, a prostitute. So the second example has to do with a woman who was a prostitute and not from the people of God, Rahab. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute justified by her works when she received the spies and sent them off in a different direction. In the book of Numbers, we read that the Israelites came next to Jericho. Moses sent a couple spies to check out Jericho, and one of them was Joshua. Do you know what happened there? When the 12 spies came to Jericho, the people of Jericho realized that these men were spies, and they tried to place them under arrest. So the spies found a door open and enter into the house of prostitution which belonged to Rahab, a citizen of Jericho. Rahab's house was a part of the city wall. One of the windows was built on the walls of the city, so the 12 men asked her to hide them. Hide them. But she was a citizen of the city, and these were supposedly enemies, enemies of her own country. She should have turned them into the authorities, but she did not. In all likelihood, she heard about the God of the Israelites and how his people were surrounded by wonders and signs in the desert and how for 40 years their clothing did not wear out. So she believed in the God of Israel, so she told them, I know that you belong to the true God and your God protects you so you will conquer our city so I would like to be on your side. So here this prostitute confesses faith in the true God and she wants to belong and she wants to be a part of God's people. So here we have simply faith where are her works? Her works are that she hid the 12 spies, she activated her faith, she backed her faith with action. So when they asked her, where are these spies? Did you see them? We saw them go through here. She said, yes, they did, but they went out the window. They went that way an hour ago. Now she lied, 
Yes, but she was also an idolater. It is her faith that counts here. Faith totally backed by action. She put her life at stake. So she saved the spies by telling them to follow a different route from the one that the soldiers took. Not to mention that Rahab is commemorated by St. Matthew in his genealogy. And Rahab will give birth to Jesse, who will give birth to David, and David is a descendant of Rahab. Rahab is considered an extremely important woman, having many prophets or, or descendants, including Jeremiah, from Rahab the prostitute, which means that her life changed. How did it change? When she believed that the God of Israel is the true God. So St. James here says, Did you see how Rahab was justified? She did not stay satisfied with her faith, but she showed works. What works? Again, she jeopardized her life to hide and save the 12 spies, including Joshua. And now, having completed these two examples about the relationship of faith and works, St. James finishes the topic of faith and works with this statement. Was the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So we need both in our Christian life, faith and virtues. Faith with works. Works without faith are useless. Question, what is the secret behind increasing our faith? At some point, the disciples asked the Lord, Lord, give us more faith. How was their faith increased? By following the Lord. In other words, by having works. Let's hear what happens. Here's the secret. We have inside of us a certain amount of faith. According to how we see some things, according to the level of our understanding. The Word of God is always the same but it is accepted differently by different people. What makes the difference is our way of life and the virtues that we have. The Holy Spirit begins to be present according to the measure of our virtue. The Holy Spirit begins to open our eyes. Let's say, just for an example, do we have 10 degrees of virtue? then the Holy Spirit will open our eyes 10 degrees and we begin to see a little bit more. This increase that we see pushes us to seek more virtue so our faith becomes solidified. And when our holiness and virtues increases to 20 degrees, let's say, now the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the level of 20 degrees. Therefore, the opening of the eyes of the faith takes place with the increase of virtue, and this is the secret. Let's begin to seek virtue and live with virtue, and then we will, we will be amazed. We will see things that the world cannot see. We will hear things that those around us cannot hear, and we will feel things that others cannot feel.
will become internally happy and joyous when there's so much misery all around us. This is the secret to get started, to decide to begin the blessed road of virtue. Then faith will be revealed in a grandiose way. The work of virtues open the eyes of faith and someone can begin to see very clearly the person of God. He begins to see the world differently, the people differently. He sees himself differently. His horizons widen beyond this world, beyond this universe. He sees things in the spectrum of eternity. His eyes become telescopic and compound, enabling him to see the mysteries of God. And with this, we conclude the second chapter of the epistle of St. James. And we read the whole chapter. My brothers as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into, into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish men, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and he was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. 
In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Was the body without the spirit is dead? So faith without deeds.